Ecclesia is a new church trying to live out the way of Jesus in Princeton, New Jersey. We pray this teaching invites you to love Jesus and people more deeply and to embrace the full life that Jesus offers each one of us. Grace and peace to you. Well, we continue this week in our series on the book of Revelation entitled, Come, echoing the beautiful invitation that Jesus, the risen Lord, offers to all and echoing the cry of every longing heart that longs to see their maker. And this week we're going to continue moving through a throne room scene that Danielle started for us so beautifully last week. I love seeing our interns and and even the other voices that we have in our community uh, get a chance to, to flourish and to really show you what they can do. And she did a phenomenal job. Uh, so I know I was blessed by that and I hope that you were too. So we're in the middle of this throne room scene, these awe-inspiring images of worship and the majesty of God. Uh, But the question remains, I think for us, as we see these images that are so big, these visions of power and majesty, they can almost seem kind of distant and ethereal. I think the question for us is, does this actually have anything to do with our life here and now? Because again, Like, great God, you're majestic, you are powerful, there's thunder and lightning all around you, everybody's bowing down to praise you. But then I look at the world and I wonder, what does that have to do with my life right now? So we're going to pick up the scene in the midst of the same vision, the throne room of God. And there, John, the one who's writing this letter, this vision, this prophecy, sees the indescribable one seated on a throne, and he's holding a scroll. And John, in seeing this scroll, has an instinctual sense that this scroll is the key to everything. It is of immense value. An angel gives voice to the question as we begin in Revelation chapter 5, verse 2. If you want to turn over there with me, please do. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under heaven, uh, was, could open the scroll or even look inside it. John says, I wept. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. John knows. He has the sense that this sealed scroll holds the keys of hope, but he's overcome with anguish at the thought that no one in heaven or on earth can open it. And in many ways... We all experience this. We, we can uh, form a picture of, of the life that we want for ourselves, a life with a peace that surpasses all understanding, that pours itself out. We can form an image of a life that would bring healing to our world, a life of justice for us and for others. But it seems so hopelessly naive. A sort of Pollyanna-ish vision of the kind of world that John sees confined to heaven in Revelation chapter 4. My hope for you today, as we've sort of laid out the juxtaposition between life here and now and what it seems like is going on in the heavenly throne room, my hope for you today is that you will see that the vision that John sees here in Revelation chapter 5 is an answer to the question, what does heaven have to do with earth? So that question, okay, if everything's all good and there's this place of bliss and it waits for us, that's great, but what about here and now? 
that this scene in Revelation 5 is an invitation to see how heaven and earth intersect. And in that, in that invitation, what does heaven have to do with earth? This scene in Revelation chapter 5 is an invitation to prayer. And so that's what I hope you take away from today. You see that these two things have everything to do with one another. And then you see there's a response built into this vision. Now, as John, as we've seen here in Revelation chapter 5, as he thinks there's no one who is able to open the scroll, he weeps bitterly. He weeps at the thought that there was no balm in Gilead, no one who is able to heal the wounds of injustice, of oppression, of persecution, of shame. His response helps us to see two ways that we often respond to, to this feeling of powerlessness and hopelessness. The first, the first way that we respond is we respond with despair. John knows that he is unable to open the scroll. He knows that he is not worthy. And now, much to his great horror, he perceives that there's no one else who can open the scroll either. And what we often do, especially in situations where we are, we are feeling like our very life is at stake, we often project our own powerlessness onto God. We think because we can imagine no future, because we can see no way forward, we're staring like the people of ancient Israel at the Red Sea and the Egyptian army is behind us and we can conceive of no way out. We often project that kind of thinking onto God. And yes, if we're left to our own devices, our own ability to provide, our own ways of coping with shame, of managing our sins, we have every reason to despair, to weep bitterly, to think that all is lost. But this passage, like so many others in the beautiful library of the scriptures, is not about what we can do. It's about who God is, what God has done, and what he can do. And as we'll see in just a moment, what God can do is better than we could ever imagine. But we want to look at one other response that we often uh, revert to in these kinds of states. So the first one is despair. We are hopeless. We can see no way forward. The second one is apathy. This is a way that despair makes peace with, with our own hopelessness. When there is no future, we make our home in the present. And I think many Christians over the course of the, the coronavirus pandemic have found themselves wrestling with this. Like, what, what's the point of all of it? I don't know about your college experience, but our dining hall at Oral Roberts University, and for some of you, that name means something, and for others of you, that name is, means, just sounds funny. But I went to a school called Oral Roberts University, and our dining experience there was, uh, let's just say, like, th you know, three stars short of a Michelin kind of situation there. Uh, I, I mean, they even found a way to make pizza unappealing, which I, I think is a quite remarkable feat. I mean, you think of how just delicious, you know, maybe terrible, but those like 99 cent grocery store frozen pizzas are. And our school cafeteria still made the pizza that they made every day. It just wasn't very good. And every day there, they had this mediocre salad bar. I mean, it was nothing to write home about. But I found myself, you know, in my first 
foray into living on my own and kind of being in a situation removed from my house, I found myself trying to make good decisions and getting a plate of the, the vegetables that they had available each day. It was easy. It was there. It was all cut up for you at some level. So I just like, okay, here's some broccoli, some carrots. But then I left school. And you know what I found? To much to my surprise, is that nobody was buying vegetables, putting them in my fridge, and certainly they were not cutting them up for me. And for many of us, our normal routines have been so thoroughly disrupted, and, and our lives have begun to show how, how thoroughly and how deeply maybe we valued those things, or at least how much our habits were in line with those values. I think of things like worship, community, uh, diving into the Word of God, when they're not presented to us in a rhythmic sort of way, cut up and put on the plate, so to speak, uh, it can just be kind of set aside for a while. I read to you a few weeks ago a, a Barna study that suggested that one-third of church-going people have basically stopped engaging since the pandemic began. And in some sense, listen, I totally get it. Like if you'd have asked me, or if you'd have told me you go to church online before February of 2020, I would have said, so you don't go to church. But now, at a time where our way of primarily engaging is through this digital space, I think it's important how we, that we ask ourselves the question, how our schedules are aligning. We have to consider the circumstances of the pandemic and the way that they have shown what we truly value. Because I think so often our response to these kinds of moments where we feel like, what does it matter? When it seems like nothing is changing or that nothing uh, can really uh, make tomorrow any different than, than today. It's just Groundhog Day all over again. We begin to fall into the malaise that the teacher in Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, gave voice to. It's all vapor. Eat, drink, try to make something of your sad, miserable life because what's the point? When we fix our eyes on our human abilities and on human narratives, we are left with little option but to despair or be mired in apathy. But again, thankfully, thanks be to God, this passage is not about us and our ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. This passage is about God. So let's look at what God has done. It says in verse 5, Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. John receives here a word of comfort, a proclamation of the gospel. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. The images that cause him to raise his head are kingly and strong and triumphant. Judah is the tribe of ancient Israel, the tribe of kings. The root of David evokes Isaiah 11. It says there, A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, who was David's father, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the sovereign Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And as John looks, as he lifts his head 
from this place of absolute despair towards a new hope that has been spoken and proclaimed to him, he looks to see this image of power and strength. And much to his surprise, he doesn't see this Aslan-like like kingly lion looking like Mufasa of power and authority. No, he sees instead. Look what it says in verse 6. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. Just like God on the throne in Revelation 4, which Danielle unpacked for us last week, John sees a vision of one attended by four living creatures and the worshipers are directing their worship and their attention and their praise to him. But this time, this time the one in the center of all of the adoration is a lamb. And it says that the lamb has seven horns. Horns in this kind of literature signified power kingdoms, authority. It evokes the book of Daniel. And it says also that this lamb that has seven horns has seven eyes, which John tells us are the perfect spirit of God, this sevenfold spirit. And again, we've made mention of this as we've taught throughout this book, but seven is a number that is used symbolically for perfection or completion. So the seven spirits of God is a way of saying that his spirit is perfect. It is perfect in totality, in its love and in completion and in all that it needs. The Holy Spirit poured out into all the earth. And then look at what it says in verse 7. He went, this one, this lamb who's at the center of it all, and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders, the ones from chapter 4, fell down before the Lamb. And then he goes on in verse 9, they sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. The one who is worthy who breaks down the walls of despair and apathy is the lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing on the throne. Surely John, given what he'd seen so far, given the image of the risen Jesus he had seen in chapter 1, given the image of the throne he'd seen in chapter 4, surely he's expecting this kind of fireworks display of might, of the glory of God, the one who's worthy to open the seal an undeniable image of power. And yet here, in chapter 5, at the center of the throne is a lamb covered not in, its own, or not in the blood of its enemies, but in its own blood. But this lamb who was slain has taken this ancient scroll and now receives worship from the elders around the throne in the same way that the Holy One of Israel did in Revelation chapter 4. This is a Trinitarian scene of worship, Father, Son, and Spirit exalted and lifted high. This is a stunning image. 
in spite of the world's ways of grasping for power, in spite of the imperial forces that proclaim law and order, peace and security, with their fake news spinning narratives that they are somehow invincible, despite of all of the world's ways of declaring that we are in charge, in spite of all of it, at the center of the universe is a meek lamb that has overcome the world by allowing his own blood to be shed on a cross. Jesus of Nazareth, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the new Passover lamb that has brought forth Exodus for all. And now, John will powerfully and beautifully invite us in. Again, that question, what does heaven have to do with earth? What does all of this mean for us? How do we, as the people of God, those ransomed by the blood of this lamb, appearing as if it was slain, how do we participate in this victory? How do we welcome this victory into our lives? How do we engage in the world, called to bear witness, called to love our neighbors, to take up our crosses and follow him? Look at verse 10 as it invites us into this work. Verse 10 says, You have made them, those who follow this slain lamb, this risen Lord, you've made them to be a kingdom of priests, to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. We talked about in week one of this series that to be a priest is to be a person who declares to the world around us what God looks like. So, in light of this incredible glimpse into the throne room of God, what does it look like to be a priest in this kingdom, in the kingdom of the slain lamb? First of all, look at the second half of verse 8. As the elders draw near, as they gather around the throne of the slain lamb, as they worship him in the heavenly realm, right here and right, right now, look at what they are holding. It says, each one had a harp. And they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. A harp and a golden bowl. The golden bowls are full of incense, symbolizing pleasing offerings to the Lord. They are full of the prayers of God's people. Ecclesia, prayer is not just a vague communication sent off into space trying to reach some sort of far-off deity. Our prayers are literally poured out at the feet of the one who is the ruler over all the world. Our prayers are precious to God. He draws near to us in our prayers. They literally surround Him as He is on His throne and they are pleasing to Him. The image of the slain lamb in Revelation 5 was offered to a group of churches that were hard-pressed from so many different directions. There were so many things going on. You can read back in Revelation chapters 2 and 3 to get a sense for what these different churches are facing individually and collectively, facing a swirling of cultural forces, pressures to conform, pressures from the government, pressures to return again to the slavery of sin and idolatry. And the image 
in the face of all of those cross pressures, in the face of everything they are facing, the image that God offers to them and that John sees and writes down here in Revelation is a vision of Jesus on the throne. The Lion of Judah, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the one who is overcome by his blood. And he is not just on his throne somewhere far off. He is literally surrounded by the prayers of his people. As he is exalted in praise, he is met with the cries and the adoration and the praise and and, and the longings of, of the people of God here on earth. And the vision that God offers is not just to say, hey, you know, someday it's all going to be okay. That's absolutely true. It is all going to be okay. But the vision that God offers proclaims to us that in the midst of our most difficult circumstances, in the midst of times where we would be driven towards despair, driven towards apathy, we have access to the power of self-giving love that sits at the literal center of the universe. Courtney and I have been watching The West Wing over the past several weeks. Old show, but quite strong. And I mean, can you blame us, really? Uh, if you watched uh, the presidential debates from the last couple of weeks, uh, watching these two people yell at each other, you know, turning on Jed Bartlett and Leo McGarry is good for your soul. I only wish Aaron Sorkin could script more of reality. Um, and I want to be Jed Bartlett's friend, just full stop. One thing you see in watching these people portray what it looks like to work in the White House is that the President of the United States, as, as will be no surprise to anybody, has a lot of power. The President is not sitting on the other end of 911 when you call or the line to voice your concerns about things going on in your town. No, those are beneath his level of authority and responsibility. There are a lot of layers that it takes to you, for you to get access to the president. And I think, in thinking about this show, and thinking about uh, so often, we, we often project this kind of mentality onto God. We treat God this way as if the things of our life really are, are of no concern to him. They're beneath him, beneath his pay grade, or there's so many layers that we'd have to go to, to get his ear, that, that how could we ever even begin? But this is exactly the point of Revelation 5 and verse 10. The people proclaim that God has made us to be a kingdom of priests. And God is big enough, and in C.S. Lewis's imagery, small enough as well to hear and to honor both our biggest and our smallest requests. We don't have to go through all the red tape, the bureaucracy of heaven. We have access to the throne room of God by simply crying out to him. The image in Revelation 5 is an urgent call to all of us to participate in his life-giving work, in the life-giving work of the slaughtered lamb, to intercede on behalf of the world for our cities, for our neighbors, for our churches, for our friends. Ecclesia, we have access to the love that spun the universe into motion. This vision is not meant to just inspire awe. It's meant to invite a response. A response of prayer. And I pray that we as a people, if, if 2020 is not causing us 
you know, to, to just veer towards despair or apathy, the, the, the only recourse that we have in the midst of so many uncertainties, in the midst of so many unknowns, is to fall to our knees in prayer, to allow God to minister His very presence to us. And I want to invite us, church, Ecclesia, this is a call for us as we are building the foundation of this community, as we are a part of this young church that I believe will shine the light of Jesus and His gospel here in central New Jersey, here in Princeton, for generations. We have to lay a foundation of, of relying upon God and not just in a way where we say, yeah, of course we, we pray and then we get started, where it's the literal air that we breathe. Because in prayer, as we see here in Revelation 5, we have access to God, access to live in the way that He overcomes the world. It's so meaningful here that the God that we uh, see portrayed is the slain lamb. There's no sense of triumphalistic, you know, you can do anything if you can dream it. No, the way of the kingdom is the way of self-giving love. And the way of the kingdom, the way to be a, a kingdom of priests in the language of Revelation chapter 5, is to be a people of prayer. Walter Wink wrote about our call to the priesthood, wrote about what heaven and earth have to do with one another. And I'm going to read an extended quote. And I, I think it's so powerful and so beautiful. And I hope you'll see kind of the reasons behind the extended quote. I hope you can forgive it as well. But I think this is one of the most powerful visions of who we are to be as a people proclaiming that heaven and earth have everything to do with one another. Look at what Walter Wink writes. Intercessory prayer is spiritual defiance of what is in the way of what God has promised. Intercession visualizes an alternative future to the one apparently fated by the momentum of current forces. Prayer infuses the air of a time yet to be into the suffocating atmosphere of the present. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. Even a small number of people firmly committed to the new inevitability on which they have fixed their imaginations can decisively affect the shape the future takes. These shapers of the future are the intercessors who call out the future, the longed-for new present. In the New Testament, the name and texture and aura of that future is God's dominion-free order, the reign of God. No doubt our intercessors sometimes change us as we open ourselves to new possibilities we had not guessed. No doubt our prayers to God reflect back upon us as a divine command to become the answer to our prayer. But... If we are to take the biblical understanding seriously, intercession is more than that. It changes the world and it changes what is possible. It creates an island of relative freedom in a world gripped 
by unholy necessity. A new force appears that hitherto was only potential. The entire configuration changes as the result of the change of a single part. A space opens in the praying person permitting God to act without violating human freedom. All of Jesus' teachings on prayer feature imperatives. Ask, search, knock. In prayer, we are ordering God to bring the kingdom near. It will not do to implore. We have been commanded to command. We are required by God to haggle with God for the sake of the sick, the obsessed, the weak, and to conform our lives to our intercessions. This is a God who invents history in interaction with those who hunger and thirst to see righteousness prevail. How different this is from the static God of Greek philosophy that all these years has lulled so many into adoration without intercession. When we pray, we are not sending a letter to a celestial White House where it is sorted among piles of others. We are engaged rather in an act of co-creation in which one little sector of the universe rises up, becomes translucent, incandescent, a vibratory center of power that radiates the power of the universe. History belongs to the intercessors who believe the future into being. If this is so, then intercession, far from being an escape from action, is a means of focusing for action and of creating action. By means of our intercessions, we veritably cast fire upon the earth and trumpet the future into being. I mean, come on. History belongs to the intercessors. We owe it to our world. We owe it that the Lamb would receive the reward of His sufferings, the slain Lamb who stands at the center of all the world, that we would join Him in His passion for the world, that we would join Him in His passion for every single daughter and son. He loves the world, and He gave His life for it, and He stands resurrected and triumphant over it, and we have access. We are His kingdom of priests. We are the people who declare the goodness and the beauty and the mercy and the power of God to the very world that we live in. And the biblical writers are trying to help us see this point clearly, repeating it, that John so sees the need for this, for us to fix our eyes on Jesus, for us to trust in His power and to cry out for Him, that He gives us several images. Revelation 5 is trying to get us to see that heaven and earth, right here and right now, have everything to do with one another. Revelation 5 is telling us there is no need for despair. There is no use for apathy because there is one who is worthy, who is able, who by his very blood on a hill outside of Jerusalem some 2,000 years ago, has overcome the world. Look at verses 9 and 10. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God people from every tongue and tribe and nation. You have made them, us, to be a kingdom of priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. Ecclesia 2020 
is showing all of us that there's so much that was never in our control. And if it hasn't caused us yet to fall to our knees in prayer, I'm not exactly sure what will. Personally and corporately, in so many ways, we've come to the ends of our ropes. But as Dallas Willard reminds us, the end of our rope is where God lives. Ecclesia, there's a power stronger than death. There's a love stronger than shame. There is a justice stronger than indifference. And we have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus. The one who sits enthroned in the center of the universe sits on a throne of praise surrounded by the prayers of his people. We have been invited. We've been given access. And the world awaits and cries out. History belongs to the intercessors. The future belongs to the Lamb. Will we bring that future into this present? Will we declare as the people of God that heaven has everything to do with earth? Grace and peace to you. Thank you for listening to our podcast. For more information, please visit www.ecclesianj.com.